Hello, horror and thriller fans. My name is Jess, and this is Cam Cat Unwrapped. You've been listening to Clawheart Mountain by David Opegard, who's a Bram Stoker Award-nominated author. Today, we have him here for a virtual interview in our studio, and I am, as always, so excited to talk to him. Dave, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This is great. I said David Opegard, right? I did not say Dave Opegard. No, you said David. Okay, phew. (laughs) I know that you usually sign off emails as Dave, but I was like, wait. Yeah. I need to make sure I use your author name for <laughs> introducing yeah, yeah. you. Um, why don't My we start? People oh, yeah. usually call me David when they're mad at me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> when they're mad at you or when they're referring yeah. to your credentials. Yeah. <laughs> That's like me with Jessica. Us. Yeah, they you only call me oh, Jessica yeah. when I'm in trouble. Otherwise, it's Jess. So I completely understand. <laughs> <laughs> well, now we know a little bit about you. Why don't you tell us a little bit more? Sure. Uh, well. Uh, I live in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I've lived here most of my life, but I did grow up in a small town uh, called Lake Crystal, which is by, is South Central Minnesota by Mankato, and it was a town of just 2,000 people. Wow. And uh, I've been writing since I can remember, basically, when I was like seven or eight, I was writing stories about ninjas and robots and little (laughs) wars and stuff, crazy stuff like that. And I would fill chapbook after chapbook my uh, parents would buy for me and uh so I had a little library already by the time I was like 10 or 11. Oh my gosh. And then um after we got our first Apple II computer or whatever it was uh I started writing a short story one day when I was 14 and it was a sci-fi uh story and I really liked it and it was kind of creepy and I kept working on it and working on it and suddenly I realized I was writing a, a full book without setting out to write a book so it was a short story that bloomed into f- over 400 pages and still my longest work. Today. Wow. Because I don't write really big, thick books usually. And is this um, a published so, work of yours? Hell no. <laughs> 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 it's, uh, it's, you know, it's very ambitious if you look at the plot of it and it's set across many planets and it all comes together at the end. So the plot's the best part, but like, it's obviously kind of derivative of Star Wars and all the sci-fi I was reading at the time. I really love Star Wars, though. And, uh, yeah, Star Wars and Stephen King were the big the big influences on me that way. Okay. But, um, after I finished that book, I realized, that was when I realized I really wanted to be a novelist. Not just a writer, but, like, a novelist. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. I mean, it sounds like you knew at a really young age that this was the path for you. Yeah. That's really, I really neat. I kind of set up the rest of my life like that in some ways. I went to, uh, I wrote my second book by the time I had graduated high school. And then I used these manuscripts to get into college because my grades weren't the best. Uh, they were fine. They were like B grades, but I got into a good college because of, we actually brought the manuscript into a professor's office who's the head of the writing or did writing at the English department for St. Olaf. And my mom basically convinced him to let me into the college through the manuscript. Wow. Back then it was printed by Kinko's and single-sided and then bound 400 pages. And when you want that kind of manuscript down, it has a certain heft. 
even if I had written red rum on the whole book, it would have been impressive. The diligence. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that is really, really neat. Um, yeah. It's also crazy to think about you being that young and having a complete work like that. And you, like you said, your parents had this whole little library of things that you had completed by that point. Like, that's really impressive. Yeah, I just loved it. And I would I would just get lost in writing and reading, too, obviously. But um, it was my biggest escape. And still to this day, it's like the great founding joy of my life really is writing. Wow, that is so neat. I know you mentioned, you know, Star Wars sci-fi things being a lot of your inspiration, but also Stephen King, which funny mm -hmm. enough, this being so horror thrillery, I feel like you can see a little bit of the the sci-fi fantasy, you know, with the wraith and all of, you know, the the like interesting yeah. mystical um, aspects of your story. But you also mentioned Stephen King, of course. Uh, beyond that, what is your connection to this genre that you've you know, been able to kind of enmesh sure. um, those two things. So just speaking in of genre more broadly, I've always loved a wide range of genres. Like I grew up reading a lot of Westerns too, like mm. every Louis L'Amour basically, because my grandpa did. So I would, when I would visit them at the lake, there would be nothing to do. It's a big theme <laughs> in my childhood is uh, no internet yet and uh, no cable TV. So you, <laughs> I would read a lot, <laughs> a lot. That's awesome. And, uh, so I loved Westerns and I loved Ray Bradbury and I loved uh, Arthur Clarke and all the, the old school sci-fi. And I loved Stephen King and Dean Koontz and Robert McCannon. Mm. And then later on, um, I started to realize that each book could be a different genre. And I've kind of done that. Each book's a little different genre if you look at what I've published. Um, I've done a horror Western, I've done a uh, dark fantasy, I've done literary YA, uh, and uh, just straight horror. And this book I do consider a horror thriller. Yeah. So, uh, and another, another author I'd like to mention is just, I read House of Leaves, like when I got out of college, mm. by Mark Danielkowski, Daniel Lusky, Daniel Lusky. And uh, he was, that book really showed me what horror could do, like the cerebral side of it. Yeah. And, uh, then An Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer was horror sci-fi at its like very best. So those two books later on kind of were a big influence. Sure. Well, I mean, the psychological aspect, I think, was really, really neat. I love the way that, you know, I, I can see how even just from your little description of them, because I'm not super familiar with those with that author specifically, but um, how you can kind of draw from that psychological stuff when you wrote this book it was there's some really fun pieces to it that uh it just made it really fun to read I never try to spoil too much in the interviews just because um you know the whole point of these is we want you guys to read yeah. the books but um That's but yeah I always feel about readings too like I'm like <laughs> why am I reading this to you don't you want to read it your yeah. <laughs> don't you want to read it yourself <laughs> Here, I'll read something else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, listen to how great my voice sounds. So you want to read yeah. other stuff that has my voice in yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, it sounds like you then drew from a lot of different inspiration as you were writing many of your works, aside from just this one. Um, yes. I mean, you said you've been writing your whole life. Tell us more about some of your other published things, some of your unpublished things. What book number is this in your um, sequence here that is a hard that last question is the hardest one because I, <laughs> I actually started losing track and I had to write it, my books in a, a word document to remember which one and what year I 
finished it. Oh my god! But um, so I'll just do some of the bigger highlights quickly, because uh, I could talk forever. The book that got me an agent never got published, and I always think uh, young authors like to hear that story. But um, yeah. it was a book called Knocking Over the Fishbowl, and it was literary YA about a guy who is basically living a life of ennui in the suburbs, but then he meets this this homeless guy who turns out to be an escaped prisoner from a mental hospital or not prisoner, but just patient from a mental hospital. And it's like a comedy. It's like a literary comedy and they become friends on in an unlikely pairing. And like, mm. this has nothing to do with like a book like Clawheart Mountain. It goes <laughs> to show like how I'm always playing with genre. And I really liked that book and that got me an agent, but we never published it. And then I started writing a book called The Suicide Collectors on the side when I was in grad school kind huh. of for fun because I didn't really like my literary thesis, my thesis novel. So the thing I did as a side project to relieve the stress turned out to be the first book that we ever sold. And that wow. was my debut novel was like uh, The Suicide Collectors. And with that, I tried to create an, uh, a new apocalypse. And this was before... Uh, the apocalypse became such a huge thing. I mean, the stand has already been out for like a decade and that was a big influence, but I wanted something that wasn't meteors or viruses or something. So that book's sure. about a suicide plague that sweep, sweeps across America. And it starts five years after about 95% of the planet is, or maybe 98% has killed themselves voluntarily individually. Ooh, yeah. that's eerie. And so it's a very, it's a very dark, but it's also got one of those kind of adventurous the whole thing is about finding a cure for it. Mm. Uh, and so it's an adventure novel that follows a character named Norman and his friends that he picks up along the way. Wow. Um, and it was a very dark book. And uh, the coolest uh, little side story from that coming out is Stan Lee blurbed it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Mar Marvel Comics Stan Lee. And, uh, and then he actually sent me a signed copy of my own book. I mean, that's that's pretty bold, actually, but it's kind of cool. Yeah, when I, I was like, that's a baller move when you're Stan Lee and you're in your 80s. And I remember thinking at the time, please don't die before the book comes out, because it kind of feels weird if a dead guy is blurbing my book. Like, maybe I killed him. But then he lived for, like, another 10 years, and they had the whole Marvel renaissance. Yeah, yeah he, so he was around was for a while for after that. <laughs> but that shows how kind he was because I'm sure my publisher just reached out to him and he didn't have to do that. Yeah, um, that's really I great. I still have trouble getting blurbs now. <laughs> <laughs> so are Stan you a Lee big Marvel a fan as well? Well, I'm a Stan Lee fan, I guess. Um, I am kind of, but I'm not, I wouldn't say big, but I watch most of the movies and I follow most. Like, I haven't watched the series Loki yet. Okay. Even though my friends told me to. So that's kind of the level I'm at. Like, I'll see the, the feature films, but I don't always watch the shows. That's so funny. Well, getting back on track now. <laughs> thanks for taking the little detour with me. Um, I'm wondering, you know, I mean, gosh, I feel like I want to ask you this question about all of your books, but I'll focus on Clawheart. Um, or is there anything in your real life, people, places, things that you felt found their way into Clawheart Mountain? Um, like, uh, like a lot of Midwesterners, I always say we're kind of fascinated and have this romantic, uh, idealized notion of both the ocean, any ocean and <laughs> mountains, right? Mm. The first time I saw mountains, I, I, it wasn't until I was like 13 and we drove to Denver. Oh, wow. For, uh, 
a weekend vacation. And then I probably didn't see the ocean till later than that in my life. Okay. Well, actually, I saw the Gulf of Mexico now that I think of it when I was a little kid. But okay. um, both both these, both oceans and mountains, if I could retire somewhere and it wasn't insane housing prices, you know? <laughs> yes, but, um, I do. <laughs> but uh, so when you live in the, so when you live in the Midwest, though, you kind of like, I was like, if I'm going to spend time in a fictional world, I want it to be a little exotic and interesting. Sure. And, uh, so that probably helped with Claw Heart Mountain because if I really lived on a mountain, maybe I would, I'd have maybe grittier details, but it wouldn't be as like romantic to me, maybe. And you wouldn't come out in the prose the way it does, hopefully in the book now. But uh, sure. so I love the mountains and I've been camping out West several times. And uh, I did research in this general area of Southern Wyoming and Northern Colorado for a different book, the horror Western that was set in a mining town. Mm. And um, there's also a monster in that book that could be the ancient relative of the wraith, really. Ooh. <laughs> I start world building like King does, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Real intricate. But, um, and with a lot of crossover. <laughs> yeah. And also uh, I visited a, like um, a ski lodge, a little small one compared to the real ones. Mm -hmm. But during summertime in Northern Minnesota, they have slight Hills up there. And uh, when I was a teenager, and I thought it was kind of spooky how, like, the ski lift wasn't moving, the lodge is deserted. You could feel this is a place for public recreation, but it's this isolated mountain with green grassy slopes instead of ski slopes, you know? Yeah. There's something about, like, it wasn't how it was supposed to be to me uh, stuck in my head. And that's the Sunshine Lodge in, the, in Clawheart is a big set piece in the third part of the book, third act of the book. Right. That's uh, inspired by that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as soon as you said it, I was like, mm, I know where that comes into play. <laughs> Very interesting. Wow. So, I mean, it definitely then sounds like you've drawn from a lot of different uh, pieces of yourself, really, um, your of your own experience to, to create. I mean, many of your books, but this one specifically, which is so, so neat. It's so funny to hear. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, obviously, but as someone who's born and raised all over California, I'm very familiar with beach, very familiar with mountains. Um, and so it, it just makes a lot of sense how if that's not something that you're really familiar with seeing, how it would be this kind of cool thing to unearth. Um, yeah. Oh. Yeah. And for Minnesotans, uh, Lake, Lake Superior is our ocean, you know. Sure. It's a two-hour drive from the Twin Cities. Mm. And it's real beautiful up there. And you can go up there and you don't see the other side of it. So it does look like you're looking at the ocean. But it's not the same. You don't smell the salt, you know. <laughs> There's yeah. definitely something about being on the beach, being in the ocean, that I think yeah. is, you know. I mean, lakes are also so beautiful and have just you know such a mysticism and 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 beauty to them obviously but uh but yeah there's something about the ocean that is similar but just different in in this in the smell and the vibe and the feel uh so that's really yeah 
That's really interesting that you say that. Um, back to books again. I'm really loving though how often that you and I kind of find ourselves trailing off into other topics. It's very, very fun. I feel like I get to interview authors all the time and I love hearing about the books and obviously we're going to always circle back, but it is always very fun to me to just get little glimpses into what your life looks like. Um, so this is your 18th book of a bazillion let's 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 guesstimate to a bazillion i think that that's a fair <laughs> guesstimate um tell me about your writing process to, and i also want to i'm so curious as to how it's maybe changed from your first ever book which sounds like you were very very young to your first published book to your first book that got you the agent um is that a super loaded question we can take that in pieces let's start with clark <laughs> Well, my process is pretty, actually pretty simple. Uh, I kind of start with the first, I try to come up with an idea in general of something that'll interest me. And for Clawheart, you know, we were living in the age of Trump's first presidency when I uh, started it. And I was kind of obsessed with this idea of how much is enough? Like how much do you, how much does a person need? And like greed, you know, for, and how people that already have a lot makes it sometimes makes them greedier so it was important that the the teenagers in Clawheart Mountain came from pretty wealthy backgrounds for me sure because it made it more of a complicated moral dilemma when they found the money and like what's familial wealth versus your own money when you're 20 yeah you know and that kind of idea so I started I don't start every book like this but I started with that kind of conundrum mm. and then I kind of set it on a mountain and then I started with the idea of teenagers finding an overturned armored uh, vehicle. And uh, then obviously they'd be faced with the question and then they would take the money and bad things would happen after that. And then yeah. the bad things kind of developed later. And at first the only point of view was Nova. And mm -hmm. if we're talking points of view and structure in the book, it was, uh, it was later drafts where I, I realized Bannock was, would be such an interesting character to get in the head of. Definitely. And after I created Bannock, I was like, well, we need something to balance out this total darkness. Because he was an adult point of view. We need another adult maybe in the room that represented the, the lighter side. And that was Deputy Serrano. Yeah. And uh, so then it became three points of view. That was an organic decision along the way. Interesting. And, like, I know a lot of people, a lot of authors do a ton of research. And I did some research. But uh, I really start with just page one. And I kind of write till I have 50 pages and then I notice, okay, now it's, it's good. It's got legs. Let's, this will be a book, but I don't assume wow. it's going to make it past the 50 pages. So I'm ready to eject. So I don't spend years, which I have. <laughs> yeah. Another book, I, I wrote a whole book and then rewrote it from scratch twice before it became the published book it became. So yeah, but with Clawheart and most of my books for my outlines, sorry, I'm kind of all over the place, but it's no, it that's okay. I'm 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 totally <laughs> enthralled. Every I'm hanging on bated breath. I think is the term <laughs> for how I'm feeling. Right. I'm I'm absolutely immersed in your story. <laughs> um, for outlines, so I write those that 50 pages first, really before I do any kind of outline. But then while I'm doing that, I start thinking about the broader picture of the novels, how it's going to unfold by what I'm discovering on the page as I go. Mm. And then I use that to inform me around 50 pages, if I think the book has legs, to write 
an outline, but my outline is only about one sentence for each chapter. So it'll be like one through 20, then one sentence explains the chapter. And, huh. the, and then I, I usually refer to that, but then it always changes and there's always second and third and fourth outline drafts. That is so fascinating. I want to leave air for the character and the story to breathe and evolve without yeah. going too far off the rails in general. That is so, so neat to me. I feel like we usually ask our authors if they feel like they're more of a planner, someone who goes through so series of mm. outlines and, you know, has everything very meticulously planned as they go in um, or a pantser, which is, you know, flying by the seat of your pants, um, <laughs> you know, just kind of they've described it as letting the story tell itself as they're writing it, which I've always just found yeah. so, so interesting. Um, and it sounds, this is the most interesting combination of the two that I've heard <laughs> where you're just kind of like, I have this idea. Let's write for 50 pages, see where it goes. Okay. I like this. Now I'm going to plan it out, but plan it out with leeway for the story to tell itself to me. That is such an interesting perspective. I'm really fascinated by that process. Is that, was that your process with you know, books from the start, from seven, eight years old, or was that more something that evolved as you started writing more? Hmm. It's kind of hard to remember now. Sure, sorry. I think, it, <laughs> I think I started that with my second book. I think I learned from my first book, and I had a really good English teacher in high school, and I started to think about more about structure and stuff. But honestly, until I was in grad school, I didn't, like many years later, I didn't really understand point of view. Like I knew what it was as just a term, but I didn't really grasp it. And I intuitively just stuck to third person limited point of views without, or first person, but I never really considered these higher things. But yeah, I guess I started writing outlines with my second book when I realized it was make, make it easier. It's also kind of like, even if it's a very skeletal outline, it's like a security blanket that you sure. can go back to if you lose the way a little bit, mm. or if you even forget where the hell you were going with this. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, always nice to just kind of know, okay, that's the point I needed to hit. Let's let's yeah. try and work our way back over there. And I also draw a lot of maps, like very like ninth grader level <laughs> maps of like like um way towns are laid out or even a house or a room. Just uh 2D maps in my little note spiral notebooks, just so I make sure the character keep them in the space. You know, helps me imagine what room they're walking into and not mess that up. That's so neat. So really being able to to visualize not just in your head, but, you know, does this actually make sense if I were to chart it out? That is so yeah. neat. And I think I learned that earlier on from fantasy books and how they have those great maps, especially Lord of the Rings mm, and all those yeah. maps they have at the beginning of fantasy. And like, as a young reader, I was picking up, this helps me immerse myself more in the world because I can, I got a mental, it's mental mapping basically. Sure. Oh, that's so interesting. So did you draw out the side of Clawheart Mountain? Okay. Here's where the resort is. Here's where the van is. Here's where they're going. Here's what, you know, all the places that they're stopped. Yeah, here's the sheriff's office. I also, I also had to figure out how big is this mountain? Because like, it's gotta be pretty damn big. Yeah. Not so big that it's crazy because it's, there's no mountain this big in Wyoming, <laughs> but, but I mean, it's part of the Rockies. The, the Rockies go all the way up through the edge of Wyoming, Mount, Montana, into the Canada, obviously, would become the Canadian Rockies. Yeah. But, um, so it is a little part of the Rockies, but uh, 
mountains as big as it needs to be for the purposes of the story. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> yeah. I think readers are pretty generous about that. They're not sitting there with their gradation maps and like no, of course. graphical maps, but you yeah. try to get at least a, an idea. And I think there's an element of believable world building that I think happens too, where it's like, okay, is this our Wyoming? Maybe not, but this is definitely real for this world. This definitely, you know, needs to exist for the purpose of this story and exists in a believable way. So I felt that way as I was yeah. reading anyway, that, you know, I didn't Not know much about like Wyoming that. geography, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or geography in general, truly. But, <laughs> um, but in my mind, I thought this is a mountain that exists. <laughs> you know, whether it does or doesn't was irrelevant as I was so immersed in the story. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you'd mentioned, you know, mapping out all of your things. You'd also mentioned how in different perspectives, you know, you, you kind of learned to incorporate as you have gone on your overall writing journey from, um, you know, from writing things as a kid to now. Um, what would you say in this book specifically was the hardest scene for you to write? And then maybe in general, what are hard things for you to, to write? The opening chapter for almost any book is such a critical chapter mm. where you're trying to convey all this inf brand new information, but you want to show, you want to tell it all. And you got to keep the narrative going so you don't lose the reader's interest. Sure. So like you could teach a, uh, MFA level class just on first chapters and rewrite them and rewrite them. I think nothing gets more rewritten by me anyhow than the first chapter of any book. And for Clawheart Mountain, you had to lay out, you had to map what the mountain was like, and you had to describe a whole group of teenagers in a short amount of time and give them enough character traits that the reader has something mentally to hold on to when someone speaks. Mm -hmm. And, um, and they're all teenagers going to college, so they're not totally different kind of people. Sure. But, but, like, they're little quirks and stuff. So just getting all that down and then refining it enough to make it a polished chapter. And then, of course, you need the great hook at the end. Oh, That's yeah. You find the armored van and Nova goes to the back and looks in, but it doesn't say until second chapter what she sees. Yeah. Oh, that is so neat. So that kind of introduction kind of scene. Which, so yeah. when you go back and start revising it, does that happen after you write your first 50 pages and do that process? Or is that something that you're constantly doing as you're also trying to get it to a point of, do I like this or not? The funny psychological thing is uh, when, you, when I'm working on that first draft, every time you open a Word document, um, that first paragraph pops up for me, you know, so before I even get into the world, I often am refining just one word or one sentence. So that first page has had my eyes on it way more than anything else in the book. Sure. The other parts. Um, but beyond the first chapters, I, I was just going to add that uh, I think when Bannock finally meets uh, Nova on the mountain, those scenes were the most loaded and hard to, because I wanted him to be creepy but yet they, they kind of form a little bit of a bond mm -hmm. by the, by the time they face, you know, yeah. their fears. Yeah. So that was another hard, those chapters, if you go look back at them, I was really making sure 
And it was actually uh, my editor was like, why don't you make him a little creepier and a little more sexually charged? Oh. It's, it's just a little more, just to give it a little spice. And I was like, okay. You're the freak. <laughs> so I can blame them for that, right? No, but <laughs> That's but, uh, interesting. Yeah. Ugh. I, you know, what's funny is uh, usually that kind of stuff, unless it's like blatant right in my face, it kind of goes over my head and I felt like it went a little over my head there. I just, I felt that the creepy. That probably means you're a nice person. You're, you're a nice person. <laughs> or, or maybe a little naive, you know, we'll see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll see how it plays out, but I'll take the nice person compliment. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's really interesting. Yeah. To have to, to, and to be told by your editor too, was it one of our CamCat editors? A cool note. Yeah. Yep. Um, was, to, was it Helga, Alana? Yeah. Sorry. It was Helga. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Helga. Yeah. Um, to, Helga to be Sheer. even be told, all right, you know, let's, let's push yeah, this further was, than it. By the way, Helga was so great to work with. She was really great to work with. Yeah. Best editor I've ever had on a book, I think. Oh, that's awesome to hear. St. Martin's Press and um, some other great publishers. So. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, that's really great to hear. We've actually, we're, we're planning on having Helga on the podcast at some point, too, just so we oh, can That'll be a great interview. Brain. Yeah. Oh, and she's just so eloquent. I've known her since I was a teenager, so it'll be really, really oh, cool okay. to get to yeah. pick her brain professionally. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, awesome. that, that must have been so interesting, too, to to be told, like, here's this kind of iffy topic, push the envelope, go even further. Yeah, I mean, it's just a matter of like turning a dial a little bit, not going too crazy, which is like the best kind of editorial notes in general, I've found mm. is like things that like, just make everything tighter and a little more exciting. Yeah. That's stuff that I really, the notes I really love mm. because I've really worked hard on a manuscript by the time it sees my agent's eyes and before sure. it sees in any editor's eyes. So like I've got the basic foundation of what I want. So yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds a lot like you, you put so much of yourself into these stories you know, they have something have been something that have been so much of how you grew up and, and so much of your heart. So it makes a lot of sense that you would put a lot of effort into creating something that you're proud of before anybody puts eyes on it. So I think that that kind of heart really comes through. And, and, and I mean, it, I felt like it came through in this story. So I, I'm sure it comes through in your others as well. That's really, really neat. I think what it boils down to with me is I get bored pretty easily when I read other books <laughs> and I keep that in the front of my mind all the time when I'm writing. Yeah. I try, try to make it as interesting as I can to me. And then I'm just trusting the reader will also be interested. Sure. Oh, that is so funny. I get bored reading <laughs> other books. So I try yeah. to not to make sure my readers aren't bored. Honestly, I think that's fantastic motivation. <laughs> yeah. So for you, you've mentioned a little bit, you know, turning up the dial on some things you've mentioned, even knowing a little bit of Wyoming geography and, and, and just little bits of things that sound like they've kind of become important as you have written this book specifically. Um, what kind of research do you generally do to inform your books and your stories? And what kind of research did you do specifically for Clawheart Mountain? Well, I'll say because of the style I write, I write a lot of fictionalized locations. Mm -hmm. My previous published book was called The Town Built on Sorrow. Mm. And that's a YA horror novel set in a town I, named Hawthorne that I just made up. 
but it, it's located somewhere like, you know, kind of Colorado-y. So okay. as you notice, I barely ever write about stuff in Minnesota, almost never. Sure. <laughs> so Too familiar. Um, what I do, <laughs> I mostly, yeah, right. I mostly do uh, spot research. So when I find I need a good concrete detail, like um, with Bannock, I was going to say, I had to look up all this stuff about compound bow hunting because mm-hmm. um, he uses a compound bow, a uh, mechanical bow. Uh, yeah. Bow. Uh, and uh, I knew nothing about it. I'm not a hunter or anything. So I had to look into that and learn how if you can keep like the U handle of your bow and then you could add different parts, but you'd have this part of the bow he'd use for all his hunts, which would mm. be important to a character like him. Sure. So sometimes your research helps you develop your characters. Once I learned that was a thing people did. Yeah. They kept part of the bow, but enhanced it with more modern stuff as years went by. Um, right. Those that kind of spot research is mostly what I do because it is so fictional what I'm writing. And uh I don't even if I write stuff set in the past, I I'm not as bound to like the historical fiction level of detail. Okay. Although when I wrote the Western, I made sure I uh, knew everything about copper mining and stuff because it was a mm. copper mining town. And part of it took place in the mines. But, sure. Uh, so then you, you have to dig in deeper sometimes. But uh, I'm really, I'm amazed that some writers, I hear their interviews and their research is so off the scales more than mine. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm, I'm writing that for homework. <laughs> <You know? laughs> That's what I'm like, I'm out of school. <laughs> You're like, but, uh, I don't I have to, to do, do that enough. anymore. I'm doing this yeah. for pleasure now. <laughs> I'm doing my due diligence. Yeah. And I, I will admit that a lot of research has helped me so I can see why it's like a necessary. But for me, it's a little like taking your vegetables. I'll <laughs> sure. see you wormholes, you know, like when you look something up on YouTube and suddenly like hours have gone by and you've been in this wormhole and you're like, uh, I could have been writing during this. <laughs> that's that's fair. Uh, it's so funny that Which you. Is the thing I think a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. I could, I, I had to spend my time grocery shopping. I could have been writing. <laughs> yeah. I think this all the time. If you're talking to me, 50% chance. <laughs> During this interview, you're like, oh, I could be writing yeah, like, right oh, now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I could be getting an Academy Award for some reason or something. I'd be like, ah, oh, waste of time. Nobel <laughs> Prize. And you're like, all right, yeah. uh, let me oh. get back to my laptop. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's hilarious. That's really great. Um, but I was thinking it's so funny to me, you know, or or so interesting to me. I feel like the way that you did research on Bannock specifically on his bow may like lent so well to the character. That felt like such an essential thing for him. So whether it was, you know, just something that kind of got built out. And then was like, okay, yeah, it makes sense that he would be like that or an essential part of his character. It felt, or, you know, from the get-go rather, um, it felt so central um, for him. So I just, I, I appreciate that you, that you took the, a little extra time, even if it took away a little bit from the more creative fun part for you to, to really, the, the attention to detail made a big difference and and I think makes a big difference to a lot of readers. So I, I really appreciated it. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I've, I find the devils in the details most of the time with writing actually. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Details. Well, I want to shift gears just a little bit um, and talk about the audiobook, which is what our audience has been listening to as we have been 
listening to this book uh, on the podcast. And if you want more info on the audiobook, you can go find it on Audible or KimCatBooks.com. It's all over the place if you missed the entire book out on the podcast. Um, but we have been all listening to the audiobook. And I'm curious as to what your experience was. If you've listened to the audiobook, um, what your experience was hearing it read out loud to you. Do you have other books that are also in audiobook form? Have you listened to those? Just one other book, and it was my debut novel. So it's been oh. almost 15 years. Yeah. So it's the Suicide Collectors is on an audio is an audiobook. Mm. And the cool thing about that audiobook is it, uh the the voice actor and it's just one actor. Uh, he sounds like a deeper, gravelier Kelsey Grammer. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and the opening line is like the path home was hung with weeds and hanging vines. Like, and uh, he gives it this gravitas that wasn't in my brain, but once you hear it, you can't unhear that voice. Kinda. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Wow. And, and with Clawheart, it was really interesting because unlike my first book, I wasn't able I was able to pick or, or put my hat in the ring and vote for each uh, voice actor for the three different points of view. Yeah. So they send they send you a uh, CamCat sent me um, three different audio clips or f- three or four for each character for each point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I kind of picked which one I liked the best. And then it's kind of like they're all good. They're all good. So but it was interesting how. When you hear the voice, you know the voice. That's that character. And I I, mm. I felt that the most with Deputy Serrano out of the three characters. Oh, wow. Um, like, that voice, for some reason, really, I was like, that is, I was really hoping. And they went with all my choices. So that's Okay. Awesome. So oh, that's really cool. Audiobook, it's because CamCat did a great job of finding voice talent. And because uh, and really, you picked really well. Like <laughs> yeah and i i tried i tried my best well it's like what do you hear and with uh interesting enough with deputy serrano it was um it was like how she handled the, uh the the spanish accents on stuff mm. and some that some of the actors is a little more pronounced or something i was like that sounds most natural like deputy serrano would talk sure know, in my head yeah, yeah. oh that's so um, neat well okay yeah. well, then and my it, next it question yeah Good. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. My next question then is, um, did they sound the way that you hoped they would? Did, did hearing the audiobook read aloud to you sound the way that you had imagined it would in your head? I think it was a little better, actually. <laughs> uh, but it is, we- it is weird because I'll, it's almost, it's an audio version of seeing a movie made out of your book. Mm-hmm. And so you've had this thing in your mind all this time, and then there's this other reality all of a sudden. Yeah. But overall, I haven't listened to the whole uh, book. I just listened to sections because I just wanted to hear the different points of view, basically. Mm-hmm. And the, just to assure myself that it existed, it's real and it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, it's, it's, you know, I'm very grateful for it. And it's, it feels very humbling to, to have a whole nother process attached to your book other than just the already very involved publication process. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, to have it is like a little extra extra layer thrown in there because, you know, not every, I guess, publishing house, not to pat ourselves on the back too hard, but great job, Camp Cat. Not every publisher house <laughs> does have that little extra step to to turn it into an audiobook as well. So so I mm-hmm. yeah, it's really interesting to to add that little piece to the already moving puzzle of 
putting out a physical, tangible uh, print edition of a book. And I definitely don't take it for granted because I had five books or four books in between that were published with traditional publishing houses that uh, didn't have audiobooks, including my second book, which is with the same publisher that did the audiobook. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's so funny. That's when you can tell you're being kind of cut loose. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. They're like, they're like uh, we're not uh, going to support your second book as much as the first. Sorry, buddy. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. Those subtle things you find in publishing sometimes. I guess so. Well, you had just brought up, um, you know, how having an audio book is kind of the audio equivalent to your book being made into a movie. And one question that we love to ask on the podcast, so this is a perfect segue, is who would you cast if your book was being turned into a movie? And you, of course, were the writer of the story and also the casting director because we suspend our imagination a little bit from what the film world, I guess, really is. Um, So who would you cast in your movie? So I knew you were going to ask me this because you kind of sent me some broad questions ahead of time. I so I actually like use the internet to help me. I don't want you to think, I don't want people to think I had this in my mind locked the whole time. <laughs> no, so this is why we love it. As a writer. We yeah. love it when you guys come prepared. <laughs> yeah. So I think um, just for the three main characters, uh, Nova, who's the main character, she's 19 um, in the book. She's going to be a freshman in college. And uh, she's kind of the outcast in the group a little bit and uh, she doesn't really know everybody as well as everyone else in the group is one year older which is a big deal when you're sophomore versus a freshman in college totally it's like a huge gap so but i i was thinking maybe sadie sink okay uh, plays max in stranger things yeah and uh or or this is like this would be a huge get but like jenna ortega (laughs) (laughs) well especially now i feel like when i would see her before i was like or I always thought, oh, that actress is so adorable. But now she's like this huge get. She's been in all of the things yeah. now. <laughs> I mean, if we're daydreaming here, might as well go big, right? Absolutely, yeah. Nova, I, I could definitely see Sadie Sink being a great Nova. I, I feel like she has that like kind of middle ground of like, definitely that kind of awkward broody you know, thing that you need to bring to that, but also the lightheartedness with like, I, I don't know, I just feel like would be important and an important element to add in like a child. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, so for Deputy Serrano, uh, another, these are all big gets, by the way. Uh, Deputy Serrano. That's great. I would love, we love uh, dreaming big. <laughs> yeah. uh, Selma Hayek. Yes, so good. <laughs> yeah, she'd be so cool. And, yeah. Um, I think she could do the the subtlety of like after, you know, some bad things happen in the book and she's very broken up about it. I think she'd handle that great. Sure. Um, the, the strong, but also the very like emotional yeah. and, and I think a, a good balance. She She's so good at that stuff. There's a reason that big actors are the way that they are or, or as big as they are. Yeah. And it's because they can handle the subtleties of things like that. <laughs> And um, finally, uh, Bannock, uh, the main bad guy in the book, I think uh, I was looking at, I looked up top 100 uh, bad guy actors of all time, really, um, <laughs> really lazy Google search. But I, as soon as I saw him, I was like, holy shit, it's Bannock. And uh, I would think it would be James Woods. James Woods. 
Um, I'm going to have to look so that one he's up. An older guy. He's like a silver haired fox kind of guy, but he looks badass. That's that's fantastic. OK, I'll have to look him up and see if he matches my mental image of Bannock, too. <laughs> his credits are so long that I'm looking right now and I can't even find his most famous stuff. Like it's, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh, that is yeah. really neat. Um, I know that even for like some of Nova's friends, like Isaac, I have a friend named Isaac and I just saw my friend Isaac the entire time. He has very few characteristics that actually align with your character, but in my head, he looked just yeah, like yeah. Isaac the whole time. <laughs> it is funny how when I'm writing, I'm, I'm consciously being like, don't just write descriptions of people, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like you got to really develop this character different, 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 but every character has like a little something you picked up from somebody, you know, or sure. even expressions or stuff all just kind of bleeds into these fictional worlds and yeah. just try not to be too blatant about everything. Well, I was going to ask if you ever had that happen where you write a character and you're like, Oh, this says exactly like so-and-so. And if so, did you change it? And if not, did oh. they realize that it was them? Well, that's a thing all young authors do. I think a lot, and it takes a while to, to cure yourself that kind of habit of just kind of mimicking the world and then, Sure. Creating it. So it took it took probably a few few books before I really got into uh character development deep, deep, deeply like that. Mm -hmm. But um now I try to always change everything. I even tell people there's a mom in this book, or especially relatives. I'm like, this is nothing like you. You just gotta tell people this is this guy's friend's not like you. And uh, especially when you write a dark character like Bannock, it helps because people start to look at you differently and they're like, Dave created Bannock. So these thoughts are also in Dave's head. His darkest thoughts, you know, so you're always kind of conscious about you're sort of slyly representing yourself in every character that way because everything's a That's choice you true. have to make. Huh, that is true. It's a little eerie to think about, Dave. Should we be concerned? <laughs> well, that's why everyone's always teasing Stephen King. They're like, what's going on in there? And I think well, he's just kind of a kooky main guy. Come on. Sure. Yeah. Funny. No. But. Well, and some people, you know, and it's not even about like, that's what's lurking in the depths of their soul. It's just like, that's the story that you have to tell. So yeah. Imagination's running. Telling me they'll read my stuff and they'll be like, you're kind of weird. Or they'll <laughs> say something like my whole, and I learned that that turned out to be a sign of talent and instead yes. of like a bad thing. At first, you're like, oh, especially when you grow up in a small town in the 80s, you know, and you're encouraged to be very similar to everybody else. Sure. You know, and I even played football in high school. And like, mm. that's a pressure cooker of weirdness. And, uh, <laughs> sure, yeah. yeah. Well, what's that so quote that I don't remember who said it? And I'm definitely paraphrasing this quote because it is very far from I'm sure what it actually is but something to the effect of no one ever made history by being like everyone else you gotta you know switch oh, yeah, it up yeah. a little bit yep. be a little weird because that is how you put out things that change you know the world that's how you put out stories that have an impact on people because they're like whoa I'd never considered that before uh so if, if you'll forgive a sports a sports analogy here always. I once heard someone <laughs> Someone was interviewing Wayne Gretzky, and he said something like, uh, it's not about where the hockey puck is at that moment. It's if you know where it's going. Mm. So while you're in the present, you need to kind of know the future 
And that's what set him apart, why he was able to be such a great player. Yeah. I try to do that with my plots, especially. So, like, I don't always know where it's going, but you try to get, you try to sense it while you're still working on the current scene. Because that'll inform, you know, it's, it's a butterfly effect. Sure, yeah. That's so fascinating. Well, Dave, we've gotten to hear a lot about your past works. Oh my goodness, about your past works. I talk so much with my hands, sometimes I get excited and don't realize I'm touching everything. Uh, we've talked about your past works. Uh, do you have anything that's in the works for the future, speaking of having to know where the puck is going in the future? Well, I try to arrange it so when I have a book that's being published, I've already completed the first draft of the next thing. Oh, amazing. Because um, no matter how that book is received or sells or whatever, I know I'm not even that person anymore and I'm in a different book by then. Mm. And so you look everything in the past, the praise and uh, the criticism and uh, I've been happy Claw Hart's been pretty much praised, but um, yeah. no matter what, it kind of builds this firewall so you're not just sitting on your hands when you're waiting for your book to come out because it's really, it's a laborious and, you know, there's a big lag from, once I finish a book, it's like, if it is sold, that's a year later and then it comes out a year later after that. So I've had two years, so you should, there's no like excuse for me because I try to write a book a year. Oh, wow. I, yeah, so I usually have a project. So my, uh, I've, I've recently finished, and this one's my first thriller that has no supernatural elements in it. Oh. And uh, it's my first one really set in the Midwest, but even this book is set in Decorah, Iowa, which is close enough to Minnesota, but a little different enough to make it interesting to me. Sure. And I've spent time in the area and stuff. But yeah, um, yeah so I'm right, it's a horror thriller. Or it's a it's a thriller. You could call it a straight thriller because there's no supernatural elements in it, but there's definitely horrific elements. Okay. And, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know how much to talk about talk about it other than it's about a, a guy's uh, who, whose wife has gone missing, and we don't know why or whether to trust him or not at the beginning of the book. But then her family shows up and makes everything a hundred times worse. Mm. Wow. Because um, they won't listen to him no matter what he says. Interesting. And, uh, everything keeps escalating and escalating. And it's very Coen Brothers-esque, I guess you'd say, in some ways. Like like huh. the old Coen Brothers, like Blood Simple. Well, if movie. you end up submitting to CamCat again, I hope I get the manuscript on yeah. my desk. That sounds really interesting. <laughs> you know what's so funny, yeah. too, is I was not someone who was a huge horror reader, but so when I saw, okay, I, I've got to read Clawheart now, I was a little bit nervous about it, but I was so invested in the story that I enjoyed it so much. And I have to say, you have converted me. I am really <laughs> interested in my horror thrillers now. So thank you for that. And so now yeah. I'm really hoping that, at, you know, that this next one comes across my desk as well, because I did really so much enjoy reading Clawheart Mountain. Thank you. I appreciate that. Oh, thank you. Um, before we let you go, there's one more question that I like to ask all of our authors, just as like a fun getting to know you at the end of the episode question, <laughs> uh, which is what sure. are you reading right now? I know you've said that you're a pretty prolific reader. So what are you what are you in the middle of? 
came prepared to. Uh, Amazing. Well, I guess it's going to be backwards here. This is what the cover looks like. <laughs> okay. I just finished this, and this is weird because this is a, a literary collection of short stories. Mm. So this kind of shows my side of, like, I'll go to the library once a week at least. Wow. I'll pick out a couple books that just speak to me through jacket copy, mm. basically, that I don't know much about. Although this person has tons of credits. Everyone seems to have amazing credits on every book I ever pick up now. Isn't it wild? It's like you you have a radar for it. You can just spot something that's a a masterpiece. (laughs) And this is called Funny Once. (laughs) And it's by Antonia Nelson. Mm. And uh, so that's the literary side of my life. And then right now I've started reading this old Western called The Oxbow Incident. Mm. As you can tell by this uh, jacket or this cover, you know. Yeah. But uh. If you'll if you'll bear with me, I just wanted to read the first two lines of the copy. Sure. This is why I picked the book up. Okay. The Oxbow Incident is a tale of primitive lust for revenge set in the dusty little cattle town of Bridgers Wells, Nevada, in the mid-1880s. All this stuff's already, my switchboards lighten up. This sounds very up your alley. (laughs) Yeah. And it's also set in the same time period in the same state, yeah, of my horror western. Oh, wow. A cloud yeah. suspicion, suspicion and anger lies over the town, for the herds are being systematically pillaged by elusive thieves who manage to spirit the stolen animals away through the high Sierra. So wow. I love jacket copy, you know, and I love, I write the jacket copy for all my books. Mm-hmm. And that's one of my favorite parts of the process. Sure. Anything you've read on a book. Maybe I've had to have an argument for a few sentences or something, but I, tr- I, I really love that part of picking out books and, um, you know, I'll be reading sci-fi one minute or I, I don't read nonfiction as much as I probably should, but I always love stories about things that are made up. <laughs> you know what? I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think there is. you should be reading a certain amount of nonfiction. Yeah. I think that made up worlds are very fun and you know, you're reading, which I think is better than not reading at all. So <laughs> definitely one of those readers who read to escape and just to become invested in a, a world. Ugh, I love that. I feel similarly. So I understand. I actually used to be a nonfiction reader, huge nonfiction reader. Um, but I, since joining the CamCat team, I have to say genre fiction is, has become something that is very near and dear to my heart now. So, um, it's, it's going to be hard for me to pick up a nonfiction book over a fiction book for a while, I think. <laughs> In genre, you know, it used to be kind of looked down on much more than it is today. Mm-hmm. Like when I started my graduate writing program, I was the only horror writer and they looked at me like I was this just weirdo slipping into the class. There's no sci-fi writers <laughs> in my program. At the like very few. There's just a couple of us, and we'd find each other. Everyone else is writing literary, literary, literary. Interesting. Deep well of pain kind of fiction, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Well, Dave, this was really so fun. We we're so happy we were able to get you on. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. So Dave, before I let you go, where can our audience find you? Do you have social medias that they can follow? Do you have a website? How can we keep in touch with all of the works that you're going to be coming out with? Sure. Uh, I have an author website. It's just uh, davidopegard.com. And that's where I put my, I put up my interview links, uh, my new books, even have a blog on there that I update sometimes about writing and, and general stuff. Uh, and I manage the website myself. So 
it, it's not updated to tons, but I do keep it going for every book. And you can also, it's interesting, you can look at descriptions of my past books and interviews about them. And I think it's all in one place better than anywhere else on the internet. And then uh, on social media, I have an Instagram account. It's uh, author underscore David dot Opegard. So I got a cousin named David Opegard and I didn't want him taking over my Instagram. No. <laughs> You know what? But, uh, That's yeah. fair. I also have a cousin, yeah. Jessica, so I get it. Mm. <laughs> we've got to we've got to <laughs> find ways to distinguish ourselves. <laughs> uh, well, thank you once again, Dave, for coming on. It was really so lovely to be able to pick your brain and chat with you about your book. Yes, thank you for having me. It was great. And to the listeners at home, you can find Clawheart Mountain by David Opegard in ebook, audiobook, and print formats on our website, camcatbooks.com, or wherever books are sold. You can watch Camcat Unwrapped on all major podcasting platforms or watch us on our YouTube channel. And make sure you follow us on social media at camcatbooks. Thank you all so much once again for tuning in and unwrapping another one of our books to live in with me. My name is Jess, and I will see you all next time here on CamCat Unwrapped.